Hey, very good evening to you. Welcome to another edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. I'm Louis Carpus. Nice to have you with us on this Tuesday evening. And a great honour and pleasure to be in the boardroom this evening, talking to the Chief Executive Officer of the South African Cricketers Association, otherwise known as SACA. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. And uh, nice to have you with us on From the Boardroom to the Locker Room tonight. Thanks very much, Louis. Great to be on the show. Nice to chat. Uh, let's get straight into it. Tell us, what is the South African Cricket Association? Well, SACA was founded back in 2003 by Tony Irish. And effectively, it was to start representing professional cricketers in South Africa. So with a collective representative of all professional cricketers in South Africa. So that's the Proteus men, the Proteus women, and the provincial players. So all in all, about 245 uh, professional cricketers are in South Africa. And, and yeah, we represent them. We are a registered trade union. Um, so that's our starting point. They join us as members of a trade union. But then we have comprehensive benefits and activities that we undertake for players, all based, of course, on important agreements that we have for Cricket South Africa, protecting and promoting those interests of those players. So in a nutshell, it's basically the union for the players. The union for the players, yeah. When we look at uh, cricket in South Africa at the moment, and as you mentioned, Tony Irish starting at, what, about 10 or 12 years ago, um, there obviously was always a need not only for cricketers in South Africa, but for cricketers around the world. And SACA, also part of the Federation of International Cricketers, uh, known as FICA, not the FICA that we as South Africans know Mm -hmm. that we have to register when we buy a cell phone, is it? Yeah, FICA, I mean, it's important. Uh, if you look at the development of, of players' associations in the world, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in cricket specifically, it started in the, the late 90s in Australia under Tim May, actually the, the famous Aussie spinner. And we sort of followed um, the PCA, the professional cricketers in England. They've been around a while. And New Zealand have, have come on board, as have uh, West Indies, a lot of the smaller countries as well. The Netherlands, uh, the Scottish and the Irish have got players' associations now, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. And yeah, we all fall under FICA, which is all of us together. And FICA in itself, we all fall under world players. And that's where it gets really interesting. World players is all the players associations in the world. Um, We have basically a head office in Neon in Switzerland. And that's the the NBA, the NFL, um, the FIFA Pro, the footballers. And together, it's it's a strong group. Um, We're strong as FICA, but it's a strong group uh, worldwide in terms of looking after player rights and stopping the exploitation of players in, in a lot of times around their commercial interests, which is what we do a lot here in South Africa as well. Of course, in cricket, we don't have India, we don't have Pakistan, and not having India is significant because they are by far the most powerful cricket nation. Um, but the Indian cricket board don't believe in, in players' associations, so obviously that's a, a challenge for, for those players in India. But yeah, FICA is powerful. We have lots of tough negotiations with the ICC. And sadly, a lot of what is happening in cricket today um, is, is are things that we predicted at FICA level. In other words, the growth of domestic T20 league events would ultimately lead to the undermining of, of international bilateral cricket. FICA have been saying it for five, six years that if the ICC doesn't step in, we're going to have a problem and our, our international cricket is going to get weakened. So FICA does a lot of good work protecting the interests of players, but also doing research into best practice around the world. So at SACA, we're really proud of the fact that in our Player Plus program, which is um, where we assist and support players in dual career, we regarded internationally as being at the forefront. 
Um, we often invited around the world with other players' associations, so we can learn off each other. I think, Louis, um, I'm talking a lot now because I get excited about this, but the one great thing about FICA and world players is there's no, there's, there's no, this is our information. We absolutely share everything with each other to make sure we have best practice, which is quite unique in the world today. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I mean, you brought it up. I was going to the likes of India and Pakistan um, and the ICC, if I may. Uh, and I'm going to say it because I don't think that it's appropriate for you to, you might agree or not agree with me. Um, but the ICC shows itself as a toothless organization, which seems to be dictated to by India and to a lesser extent, Pakistan and maybe a bit of Australia and England. So it can't be easy to run an organization like yours under the FICA umbrella when you're not getting the support from what is arguably the most powerful cricketing association in the world. Yeah, it's not even arguable who it is. Uh, I mean, they are just so powerful financially and they exercise that muscle. And if you, I suppose, in any business have that financial muscle, you can obviously dictate terms around the world and that's what they do. I mean, to be realistic, if, in, in January, um, India didn't play the four T20s against South Africa, if you recall. Uh, one T20 against India at home uh, for the broadcast revenues is worth 50 million rands. So that's 200 million rands CSA didn't uh, get, which is significant given CSA's current financial predicament. And that's the power of India. Everybody has to play them. So they push their weight around. Um, and the ICC is similarly in a corner relative to this most powerful nation being India. Um, so the ICC is toothless. You are 100% correct. It's more like a, a gentleman's club than a than a governing body of the sport. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of we have a lot of fights with the ICC at FICA level around player rights. For example, the ICC um, signed a deal on NFTs, non fungible tokens, for ICC events um, for the player images to be utilised by the ICC. That's an example of where FICA have gone hard at the ICC and saying you don't have those rights. Um, and that's a dispute which we hope to settle soon. So a lot of these are, are tough battles where you are battling against the ICC, who effectively are to a large extent controlled by, by India. So yeah, it's a difficult working environment in that regard. And obviously this all came about when uh, pretty much the IPL came along and the players were being exploited like in most other sports that had to transition from being amateur to professional. Look, the IPL um, is significant in the world of cricket because there's so many aspects to it that impact us all. I mean, let me start with one. The, the, the broadcast rights for the IPL for the period 2023 to 27, so that four-year period, have been sold for 6.2 billion US dollars. I mean, that's a eye-watering amount of money, over 100 billion rand. Um, now, if you think of a pie of broadcast revenues available for cricket, um, that is relatively finite. Yes, it might grow. Um, but the IPL comes along and takes out 6.2 billion of that. There's not much left for the rest of us to get broadcast rights. Now, if you think of Cricket South Africa, Cricket South Africa has got three main sources of income. Broadcast rights, which is 90% related to when the Proteus men play. So the Proteus men are critical to our financial viability as a cricket nation. So it's broadcast rights. It's ICC revenues, which you get for being a full ICC member and participating in ICC events and sponsorship revenue. Now, given CSA's last three, four years, which 
have been absolutely disastrous. Their sponsorship revenues have reduced considerably, massively. Um, so the broadcast revenues are also reducing because you have the IPL taking out 6.2 billion of the pie, meaning the, the rest of us, being England and Australia and South Africa, et cetera, et cetera, are left with less to negotiate for. So the bigger the IPL gets, and it's going to get bigger, it got bigger this year, um, the more we are under pressure in South Africa to find alternative sources of income to sustain cricket. For cricket to thrive in South Africa, you need to have a strong protest men team because it generates 90% of your revenue. You have to have a strong domestic product because if it's not strong, you don't have a strong protest team. And you have to have a strong transformation pipeline working through there so that the sport does transform in South Africa. But that all costs money as well. So that revenue you generate has to support those initiatives um, or those priorities. Otherwise, we've got a problem. So just on that point on the IPL, which was your question, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent a bit, but that's how the IPL even just affects us at a domestic level. There's less broadcast revenue money. So like I say, CSA have to find an alternative vehicle. And that's why we've gone in this new T20 league. There's an alternative vehicle to find alternative funding for cricket in South Africa. It's a very complex um, market we work in, and sadly one that very few people, journalists, understand when they write about cricket is how 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 fragile it is, um, and not just for South Africa, uh, for other countries around the world as well. Um, people say, why did England start the 100? They needed to find another source of revenue, and they went on a very alternative to do the 100. So every country is doing it. What's disturbing, though, um, and I'm now using personal experience and going back as I can to the 70s and into the 80s, and then, of course, with South Africa's readmission into cricket in the early 90s, um, the true the true white clothing, red ball, four-day, five-day, and in those days, three-day cricket seems to be kind of disappearing a bit, and it disturbs me that in five or ten years' time, all we're going to have is, as I call it, pyjama cricket, uh, Big Bash, uh, IPL, CSA, T20, call it what you like, ten overs. And the, the, the actual game of cricket is going to change so dramatically that my kids, grandchildren and yours, might never know how the likes of Graham Pollock and Clive Rice and Sir Garfield Sobers actually got involved in the game. Uh, Louis, it's already here. It's already here. Um, if you just look at South Africa's schedule for the next two, three years, um, they're no longer three test series. You'll play three test series against Australia and England, but not against other countries. Because if you want to play a three test series, you have to, you, you're effectively, it's 15 days. If you think about the actual playing yeah. days, it's 15 days maximum. But between that, you have to have at least three days between one and two. So that's now we're up to 18 days. And it's meant to be a week between a second and a third test. And that's purely for, for physical and mental reasons of a cricketer. So now I'm 18 plus seven. So now I'm at 25 days. So effectively for you to go on tour and play just three test matches, it's a month. Now let's have another look at the calendar um, very broadly. We've got the IPL that's taking out effectively 12 weeks. So that's three months. You've got an ICC event every year for the next eight years. That's going to take about another six weeks, possibly if it's the World Cup 52 months. So now I'm already up taking out five months of the year. Now we're taking out a, a month 
for South Africa's T20. We had six months when you can't play international cricket. Now we are looking at, well, where are those six months? Well, effectively, one, two, the World Cup elements are normally in our summer. So of our five, six months of summer, we're already taking away two months, maybe two and a half months for T20. So we're down to two and a half months of playing international cricket. So we're already there. Um, and I'm a... I'm a, a, a Red Bull connoisseur. I grew up absolutely, absolutely adore Test cricket. But the other point about Test cricket is it's so expensive to play. So Ireland got given Test status, I think, a year or two ago. Too much fanfare was all over the newspapers. Ireland have got Test status. They haven't played a Test match yet. Why? They can't afford to. To, to put on a game over five days is expensive. So sadly, Louis, our, our grandchildren are going to grow up with Test cricket potentially only being played between three nations. Um, because the rest of the countries, which would include South Africa, just can't afford to play it and have the time. I don't think we're far away, Louis, from seeing cricket being played in August in South Africa, even July. If we want to get our schedule in, I think we're going to see on the high felt um, cricket played, uh, international cricket played in August, just because we don't have enough time in our summer. And we're going to end up reserving our summer months for England, Australia and India. And the rest will come at, at sort of funny times during the year when we are able to play on the high field. So, so let me, we there. We there. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment, um, and without wanting to upset any of the players and or spectators, are we as as spectators in this country outside of Cape Town? And I'll add that with a glee in my face as I as I reside in Cape Town, um, where Newlands is always full, irrespective. Uh, you put a game on at the Wanderers. A test match doesn't last five days anymore. It lasts three days because the players are so used to playing T20 cricket. And you get a sprinkling of spectators, a dog and a couple of policemen go and watch the game. And as you say, there's no revenue. But on the other hand, for the broadcaster uh, to put a set of cameras up for a three-hour bash compared to being able to broadcast eight hours a day, um, their cost gets greatly reduced. But at the end of the day, it's not attractive anymore because you've, first of all, got certain players who have decided no longer to play in the test arena because they want to follow the, the money, which I don't have a problem with. Uh, so I guess we're also to blame in a, in a way, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, when people say it's, it's shocking what CSA have done by putting a T20 league on, that's been thrown at me. I say effectively CSA are just going where the market has forced them to go. Not even, they've had to go there. And you are 100% correct. Uh, the, interestingly enough, um, I can't recall the figures just offhand now, but the cost, the value of the broadcast deal between a T20 game and a test, the test is still worth more. But that has diminished significantly over the last two, three years in terms of a T20 being almost as valuable as a test match. Um, and we've become the now, the instant generation. We're all part of it, you know, whether it's we on our cell phone getting updates on scores, et cetera. So when people say to me, do you think someone will break Jacques Callis' records? I say, not a chance, because we're just never going to play that many test matches in a player's career. I and mean, Jacques played 165 tests. No South African player is going to get near that, which also throws up when people say, oh, look, Joe Root has been the top test scorer in the last three years. It's meaningless, because England play more tests than any other country. Obviously, it's an English player. There's no consistency across the number of games. Uh, countries are playing less and less. And yeah, um, it is where the market has has pushed, unfortunately. And of course, you can earn millions as a South African cricketer playing two or three T20 events around the world. And 
not that much earning playing just playing test cricket. So from a pure individual financial security point of view, you have to respect that that's an element that a person has to consider. So society has pushed us to this. Um, sadly, for like you and me who are connoisseurs, um, it's there. We're here already. And like I said, FICA have been predicting that unless the ICC get involved and start managing it better, it's going to just continue this cannibalization of our cricket. And if you said to me, what do we mean by managing it better? They have to coexist. Bilateral cricket, international cricket with these domestic T20 events, they can only coexist if the ICC actually starts sitting down with countries and saying, okay, let's start creating windows where these events get played. And then we have other windows where effectively you must play your bilateral cricket. And if Cricket South Africa, you've got an event in January, you need to accept that the Big Bash might happen there, the Emirates League might happen there, and then it's survival of the fittest. But we can't have this higgledy-piggledy where everybody plays. Otherwise, Louis, we're going to get to the soccer model, where effectively a, a cricketer is contracted by a team, for example, Mumbai Indians, and he's contracted to play in India for IPL. He's playing in South Africa, and maybe he's playing for their team in the Caribbean Premier League or, or somewhere else, and he goes on yeah. development tours with them, and he gets released to play international cricket. Um, I don't think we're necessarily far off that. And that's the football model, where you, you contract it to Manchester United and you get released to play your international cricket in a window. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just another point, Louis, that I think is mm. interesting to note in the development of the game. Um, Devil Brevitz, a phenomenally fantastic guy and, and talented cricketer, he is an example of how the cricket world has changed. Historically, if a South African got into the IPL, it was because he had performed at, at, as a protea player, be it yeah. Quinny, be it Rabada. But Devil is the first cricketer who hasn't even yet played domestic cricket in, at any degree yet got contracted by the IPL. So the IPL teams have now changed their their whole strategy. They're into developing players for the future for themselves. And if that happens to be a player from another country, so be it. So that development initiative was always totally at CSA's sort of behest of we'll call a player and developing. Yeah. Now we've got these international franchise teams saying, well, we'll develop the player because we want him to be a great T20 player. That in itself should get people to sit back and say, wow, this world is changing very quickly in that regard. And Brevis is the first guy, we know he went on a tour recently with, with uh, Mumbai to the UK as a development player on their tour. Um, those are significant changes that are small but significant in the context of where world cricket is going. So let's talk, let's just use him as an example, if we may, at the moment. And, and, and there are two issues here. One, uh, if... 20 years ago, when I toured India and a South African stroked the ball through the covers, most glorious shot, and it hit the boundary fence for four, it was, you could hear a pin drop in the stadium. Uh, 20 years later, A.B. de Villiers, for example, is playing for the Mumbai Indians or whoever, and he strikes the ball and they're screaming, A.B., A.B., A.B. I mean, that tells you how much it's changed. But now, talking about the players, how much do you as Saka have in terms of protecting the likes of a Diavolt Brevis from being in the situation whereby the financial gain that's being offered to him by the likes of the IPL outweighs what is best for him? So if you just take a step back and you asked up front, you know, who are Saka and what do we do? We've got a comprehensive, I mean, we spend, I've got nine employees here, eight of whom spend all day working with the players and we have player development managers 
to help players through their career and and outside of their career and your career. So, for example, a player, when you become a professional, you sit down with a PDM, player development management region, and, and you will then plot where do you want to go as a person, more so than a cricket as a person. So players can study, you give them bursaries to study, et cetera, et cetera. And part of that is life skills, where players have access to psychologists to prepare plans of what do you want to achieve in your life. And the objective there is to try and make a player a, a better person, I'm saying they're a horrible person, a better person, all-rounded yeah. person, so that you're not just focusing on your cricket career. And that's where that falls into place. So where you've got to make life decisions that are good life decisions about where you go, at, whether it's in your cricket career or after your cricket career, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't retire at 32 and have nothing to do, for example. Um, and that's why we, we have our player development managers and we have psychologists on, on standby all the time um, to sit with players and work through those issues. Now, that's challenging when, when young players get offered large amounts of money. Um, and effectively, this is a worldwide challenge we've got, which is why the whole player development program um, in every country is so important because, yeah, you've got to make sensible decisions. You've got to have the good people, you've got good people around you. And there are good people in South African cricket. We, we sadly, we've only got negative stories over the last four years and, and they're not, they, they, it's right that they get told, but there are a lot of good people around to guide people through their careers. Um, and we are fortunate that. You know, what FICA does is surveys players. We survey players almost twice a year. And one of the things we survey is what, what are your goals in terms of a player, a young player coming through, you know, to play international cricket uh, or to play IPL, for example. And the vast majority still want to play even test cricket, even want to play the, the actual international cricket before getting into T20 stuff. So T20 gives you financial security, but it's not definitely not giving you career satisfaction of playing a test match at Lords, for example. Um, so that's a lot of the work we do uh, with our players is, is around exactly what you're asking me. Um, but it is a challenging environment when there's so much money being paid to put around. I mean, one needs to understand, Louis, that uh, that IPL deal I spoke about, $6.2 billion, a per match, that is now bigger than the Premier League football in England. So the only per match broadcast deal that is higher is the NFL in America. So it's NFL America, IPL, India, Premier League in the UK, which is just mind boggling if you think about it. And, and cricket worldwide is now the second highest, most popular and watched sport on television after football. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a it's a massive world, even relative to to what we think it is in South Africa. So let's just talk a little bit more about the players, if we can, because uh, yep. we seem to have drifted off slightly. Um, and this okay. is all about the players. How do or what is the criteria for a player, whether it's a men's player or a ladies' player, and at what point can they join SACA? So you join SACA when you when you sign your first professional contract. So that at, at its lowest level in our game is a Division Two player who comes in. And he signs his, his contract. And as, as soon as he's signed, we'll say, here's your membership. If you want to become a member, it doesn't have to become a member. Um, and in becoming a member, there are a number of, of obvious benefits that, that kick in. So the, that's when effectively you become a member. And membership carries on after you retire for a period as well. We, we have benefits that trail, as we say. And we're trying to get more um, finances for ourselves so we can give members better trailing benefits after they've left the job. Any any time you get a professional contract and you come in, you can become a member. 
And then, of course, I guess the, these players, like any business they would join, comes with a whole host of benefits and medical aid and all those kind of things which you guys look after. Yeah, so from a soccer point of view, we've, we've got a fantastic sponsorship deal with Momentum, uh, Momentum Health, who I have to say have been really good to us. And effectively, our players can all become members of Momentum Health. And with our sponsorship that we get from Momentum Health, players get free gap cover, free life cover, free disability cover, free funeral cover, um, free virgin active membership as well. Our disability cover is interesting, Louis, um, because we sat down with Momentum's actuaries and we worked out a specific disability definition for cricketers. So that if they are injured and can't do their own occupation at the level they were at, um, they get uh, two years of their salary paid out. So there are a number of benefits there, uh, which are obviously important to young players coming through. And, you know, you have some young players coming into our structure um, from backgrounds where they've never heard of medical aid. Uh, so there's a big education piece around, you know, you, you need to be covered. You're now a professional sportsman. You need to cover every element of your, your career around medical and disability, et cetera. So those are, are, are great benefits uh, that the players get. Um, and then, of course, the Player Plus program around the education and the life skills is is massive. Um, and it's something I'm very proud of personally. You're going to have to tell me to keep quiet on it, but it's it's colossal. Um, you know, we sit down in that first week with a player and we see where they're at um, as a person. And, you know, last year we had a, had a, a young black African player come through from a township with his first contract and we discover he doesn't have matric. Um, so we paid for his matric last year at a private college. We paid for a private tutor so that after his first year of being playing cricket, yes, hopefully he's had a great cricket season, but actually he got his matric as well. That's, one can argue, significantly more important to him. So we will have a kid doing his matric at one level, and the other level, we would have had a guy finishing his LLB. Um, we've had a CA. We've had a helicopter pilot. We've had lots of VCOMs. So that when guys leave a career, or the women leave a career, um, that they're not sort of sitting there at age 34, oh, what do I do now? Well, actually, I've got a degree to fall back on or a qualification. or um, And that's a big part of our job uh, and, and where we spend a lot of our money. Uh, last season, we issued 100 bursaries. Uh, during COVID that year, um, when COVID struck, we immediately went to the players and said, guys, this is the time. You're not playing. You're not even practicing. Um, start studying. And we were up to about 120 bursaries in that year, which is great. Um, it just means players are bettering themselves. So that's a big part of our program. And around the world, this is what players associations do. And also, I guess if you think about it, I mean, I don't know how many members there are that you have uh, at SACA, but only 11 really can play at the highest level. Maybe let's call it 15, 20, get contracted 25. But there's many, many other forms of the game. And with respect to some of the players who think they're going to be pro they're never going to crack it at that level. So there's got to be something for them to fall back on. So better person, better cricket, a better future. Quite a decent massive. slogan. It is. It's massive. It's massive. And I think important to understand, Louis, that um, the only cricketers in South Africa who are going to be able to retire comfortably with not worrying about what's going to happen next year are players who've played in the IPL. You can play, for, even for South Africa, and domestically for 12 years and do very well. Don't get me wrong. You can do, you can earn millions. Um, but you're going to get to 34 and you're going to have to do something else in your life. Those guys who played IPL will probably have enough of an nest egg to be able to move on and create their own businesses. So it's critically important that you actually have that dual, the dual career program. This year, for example, end of last season, Louis was one of our most successful. We had 
We had about 20, which is the normal number of players who go off contract at the end of the season, about 20 come off, 20 come on. Um, and of that 20, we were five individuals who actually had been offered another contract in the cricket system in South Africa. And five of them said, thanks for the contract, but you know what? We've been studying for the last couple of years and we've been offered jobs in the private sector. I'm not going to play for the protest. I'm age 33. Um, rather than play another season of cricket, I think I'll start my, my career outside of cricket. Thank you, CSA. Thank you, Saka, for the degree. I'm ready to move on. That's major success because we can't afford to have cricketers going through our system, leaving when in their 30s and not having anything to do. Um, so that drives us here at Saka. Yeah, because the alternative is he's age 25. He finds that he can't make it in cricket and he's got absolutely nothing to fall back on. He's missed the opportunity of going to university. Nobody wants to employ him because he doesn't have a degree. Um, and with the greatest respect to some of the greatest names in South African cricket of years gone by, uh, you hear of benefit evenings to help support them. I mean, it's terrible to have to listen to those things. Yeah, and that is our nightmare. And, and I mean, a lot of the cricketers who were around, famous names in the 90s, who, who never benefited from the professionalism of cricket, you hear of those stories. And, and our motto here in his office, no one in our era must be in that position. So we do have players who, you know, one of the best practice scientific research elements of dual careers, you can never force a player to study. If you force a player to study, it doesn't work. So you have to invite them to study and, and, and give them career guidance to say, please study. So we do have players who just don't study, don't study, and they get to age 32 and they turn around and they say, oh, my word, what am I doing now? So we, we pay for players even once they've left. Um, we will pay for them to study. Uh, we, we paid for the, those players who were banned after the corruption scandal of 2015. Five of those players received bursaries from us even after they were banned because we realized we've got to help these guys get a life after cricket. This was an immediate termination. So we went and gave bursaries there. We will give bursaries to players Afterwards, and that's a big drive of ours is to, to generate more funds for ourselves so we can add that benefit to players. But sadly, some players leave it late, but we, we also support those players to make sure there's something you can get onto. Um, and players, players work hard and it's difficult doing a career and studying, but, but yeah, you've got to do it for yourself, for your family. Andrew, I tell you what, uh, when it comes to passion and speaking about something that you love, you're right up at the top of the list there. And I wish um, the other organization that's also got a couple of CS and A's in their uh, abbreviations could take a leaf or two or three uh, out of the book of what we've just discussed over the last half an hour. Andrew Bietzka, the Chief Executive Officer of SACA, you've been an absolute pleasure to chat to on from the boardroom to the locker room. And may you guys go from strength to strength and keep looking after our players. Thanks, Louis. I appreciate the kind words.